morning, everyone. If we've not met yet, my name is James. I'm one of the team here. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Um, a few weeks before my 16th birthday, which was a long time ago, um, I went for a walk with my dad into town, and about a minute in, he told me that his job was about to change, and in three months, we'd be moving city, and I'd be leaving the school that I was at, leaving all my friends, and going to another school. What was home um, would be no longer. And in the following 15 years of my life, I lived at 14 different addresses. Um, so what um, <laughs> home, when someone said to me, um, where is home, um, I would find it quite difficult to answer that question. Um, then as life began to settle down for myself and my wife, Nikki, um, uh, both our parents moved home. Um, so our family homes changed. And, um, and then to add to that, soon after my parents moved home, uh, my dad died, and that changed relationships with my family. Um, and, and so what I did in, in typical kind of bloke style, I just switched my attention to my wife's family and found what I needed from my own family in hers. Um, and then in 2021, um, after that had worked for about a decade, um, my mother-in-law died of cancer. And so my experience of, of home and what home means um, had, has been kind of complex. In my 20s, I, I tried to make home to be an address and failed. And when I finally succeeded at that in my 30s, um, I thought home was to be found in people. And in my 40s, I've come to see that my deep need for home can't be met by people. Each of us carries a, a deep need for home. I'm, I'm the one sharing right now, but uh, if we pass the microphone around, we'd be here for weeks, I'm sure, as people talk about their experience of home and that deep need. Today, I want to talk to you about how God wants to meet that need in you how he wants to meet that need for you <clears throat> in his mercy and how in his mercy he's going to use you to meet that need in others, how he's going to use you to help him meet that need in others. <clears throat> we're in a series looking at home and today we're going to think about where it is, how we get there and how we help others to find it. We're in chapter 9 of John's Gospel. If you've got a physical copy of it, please do look at it. If it's on your phone, don't get distracted by what's on the news. Um, uh, in chapter 9, um, the whole of the chapter is about an encounter that goes on between Jesus. And we call him the blind man, but by the end of the chapter, he's, he's well, by fairly early on in the chapter, he's not blind. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus encounters this blind man. He, he prays for him. He tells him to go and wash um, in the pool of Siloam, um, and, and then he can see. Now, if you are a, um, a Jew at this point, you think to yourself, Moses at the burning bush, um, uh, God says to Moses, um, is it not the Lord, for the Lord Almighty to help the blind see? And you'll think of Isaiah 35, then shall the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame um, leap like a heart and the tongue of the mute shall speak. It is um, the signature, sign, it is, it's that word, um, it, 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 it is the, um, the work of the Messiah to come, God himself, and heal the blind. Notice there's healings all over scripture, but there's not another healing 
done by anyone else other than Jesus where it is the blind who see. And this, understandably, causes a bit of controversy at the local synagogue. The Pharisees debate why he was doing this, and not just why he was doing it, but when he was doing it, because he did it on a Sabbath. I mean, what business did the Son of God have healing a blind man and giving him sight, but doing it on a Sabbath? So you get this long debate that goes on, and there's this moment where the Pharisees say to the, blind, the man who's no longer blind, his parents, um, uh, you know, did this really happen, you know? And, and they kind of almost, they, they won't, for fear of the Pharisees, own what has happened. And then you get this wonderful interaction between Jesus and the man who is no longer blind, and they keep asking him questions. And, and the man who's no longer blind says to the Pharisees, who really don't like Jesus, well, why do you keep asking me these questions? Do you want to become a follower of him yourselves? At which point, understandably, they get really cross with him and throw him out of the synagogue. So the guy who was blind, who'd been begging for his life, has been thrown out of the synagogue of which he was a part. His parents have disowned him just before he's been thrown out of the synagogue. And then Jesus comes and finds him. And this is where we pick up the story. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found them, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Um, It's understood in Christian literature that, um, that... the same author of this gospel was the, uh, the guy who had the revelation um, that appears in Revelation at the end of the Bible. And I often think to myself that um, John, when he had the revelation of the heavens and the earth and what was going to happen at the end, got a little glimpse of what it would be like for preachers over the following thousands of years to try to condense all of his beautiful writings and thoughts into 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. Um, and I think he would have smiled at those moments because, because those of us who are given the wonderful task of, of preaching, um, what ha- when we come to John, there's just so much. It's so beautiful and so rich. Um, so you'll forgive me that we're not going to dive into every part of that passage, but we're going to concentrate on the interaction between Jesus and the man who is no longer blind and how that helps us to understand where home is, how we get there, and how we can help others to find it. So where is home? Well, home is found in Jesus The Bible tells us that humankind was made for relationship with God. We were set in a garden. And it tells us that in the end, we will be in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Two secure homes at the beginning and at the end. And the in-between is Jesus, who leaves his home in heaven and becomes homeless so that we might have a relationship with him now. The description of that home is... um, 
given different metaphors in Scripture, but one of the metaphors is that of the, of the shepherd um, with his sheep, that we have a secure relationship with the shepherd in this life. And actually, um, what you find, if you read on from this passage, it goes straight into John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So that illustration that he gives of the nature of his relationship with his people, my sheep know my voice, comes out of this particular example. It's in this setting that Jesus is saying that. He's saying, actually, this person who, up until that point, didn't know who Jesus was. Because if you read the story, he is, Jesus prays for him and then leaves before he gains sight so the only way that he can recognize him when he comes back is by his voice. So when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know, I know my sheep and my sheep know my, my voice, it's coming out of this particular example. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, our sense of home comes from our relationship with God in this life, it points us back towards what we had and we gave up and towards what we will have in eternity. But the beautiful thing that we can easily miss in this passage is that what, what gives the security for John to say that about, or for Jesus to say that about um, this man, is that he worshipped him. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and then he worshipped him. He's the only person in John's gospel to worship Jesus. The only person in John's gospel to worship Jesus. And the fact that it's the only person is of significance because it, it, it highlights this moment, this encounter between him and Jesus and how important it is. John is wanting to say to us, there's something really significant going on in this moment and that speaks of what it means for us to have that relationship. So home and our understanding of what it means for us to, un, to, to be in relationship with the Good Shepherd comes from a relationship where we worship him. It's the worship of Jesus that's the foundation of that relationship. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and um, you're, you've been in worship... Um, with other Christians, you've heard people singing, you will find it a bit weird. Um, and, and rightly so, because people around you um, are singing about something that you don't believe, um, but actually what's happening for them is their deepest needs are being met. Their deepest needs are being met. Um, it is a mark of maturity for the Christian that... Um, we don't look for home in other places, as I did for many years, but we look for home only in Jesus. And we look for home only in Jesus in worshipping him. When we worship Jesus, we find that deep eternal home in God the Father, and it is like all our factory settings are restored. It is like all our factory settings are restored. We have a room in our house where there is a stereo that um, plays worship music all the time. So we can go into that room and we can just sit next to the speakers and know that there's worship music on and join in with that worship music. 
And we made the decision to do that in January, and it has had a significant effect on our health and well-being as a family. I would encourage everyone to do something similar. The question that I would bring to you is outside of Sundays, where do you worship? Outside of Sundays, where do you worship? For us to grow into maturity as Christians, for us to grow into maturity as Christians, we, we don't look for home somewhere else. It is found in Jesus and it is found in that relationship with him where we worship him. So where is home? It's found in Jesus. Um, how then do we get to that home? So you might be thinking, what? Oh, how do I get there? It might be that you're here and you're not a Christian yourself, or actually you're just kind of drifting, or you've, you know, it's a, it's a good question for us just to remember. Um, we get home by believing. It, it, it's just there, just before he worshipped him, Lord, I believe. Um, the reformers in the 16th century um, helped the church across the world to understand, and people like Martin Luther and others, to understand that it isn't by our works that we get closer to God. It isn't um, by our rituals that we become right before God. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And um, it's, it's, it's not the stuff that we do. It's the work of Jesus who came and who died for us in our place, in his grace. And he has saved us from death and hell. And it is a beautiful thing. And it is only by believing in him that we are made right before God. Only by believing in him that we are made right before God. So if you, when you get to heaven um, and it's gates and you're asked the question, if it begins with I, your answer, you're in trouble. If it begins with him, it's going to go well for you or he, okay? We're going to point to Jesus when we get there. We're not going to point to ourselves. We're not going to list all the things that we've done. We're going to point to him and what he did in our place on that cross. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Don't start listing your own stuff, okay? Um, but faith means belief. And, and in the problem is that in language, sometimes things get lost in translation. So if I think back to my time in Sudan, I stood next to a bunch of Sudanese guys. They, they broke up and went off in different directions. And as they did that, one of them said, we will see ourselves later. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's not how we would say it in English. Um, we would say, we will see each other later. But they translated from their language into English and said, we will see ourselves later. And it was, I thought it was lovely. Um, but actually, it's, it's, how, it's an example of how things can get lost in translation. Now, if we go back to the Greek, which is the original language in which this passage was written, the Greek doesn't actually say believe in, in the previous verse, when Jesus asks him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? What it actually says is, do you believe into the Son of Man? So the word believe appears 67 times in John's gospel, and most of the time it comes next to a word which means into. But when we translate it into English, we translate it as believe in. But the problem for us as the English is that we then think, well, I believe in freedom of speech, and I believe in democracy, and I believe in capitalism, or whatever it is that you believe in as concepts that are out there that you think are good things for the world. But Jesus isn't just a good thing for the world, he's the saviour of it. And he wants us to believe into him. He wants wholehearted belief. He wants a journey into him. 
the illustration that I like to use is it's as if you're at a spiritual casino. I wouldn't recommend anyone to go to a casino, but it's as if you're at a spiritual casino. And what Jesus is asking you to do is to take all the chips and to place it on the space on the board that says Jesus and nowhere else. And that's what he's asking at this moment. Not, do you, do you kind of think that there's a son of man? He's saying, do you believe into the son of man? Are you willing to put everything on me? If you're here and you're not a Christian, the invitation for you is, are you willing not just to say that Jesus is a nice guy or you think his teaching is good, but do you believe into him? Are you willing to put everything into him? And if John Wesley were here, he'd say many things. He'd probably be on a horse, um, and we'd be outside, um, and um, it would be a lot more forthright than what I've been giving you this morning. But he would want to draw the distinction between are you a churchgoer or are you a Christian? Are you believing in Jesus like you believe in freedom of speech or democracy or whatever else it is that you believe in? Or are you believing into him in a way that means that all your chips are on him and there's nothing else that has your belief other than him. And he would say to you, churchgoer, if that's you, wake up. Wake up. Jesus doesn't want churchgoers. He wants disciples. He wants people who will put everything in him. I believed in him as a 21-year-old. But as my sense of home has been challenged, he's kept coming to me and saying to me, do you believe in me? Do you believe into me? Are you going to keep putting your trust in places or in people? Am I enough, James? And today he says to everyone here, do you believe into me? So where is home? Home is Jesus. How do we get to that home through belief in Jesus? Then how do we help others to find that home? Well, we do what Jesus did by meeting needs and inviting belief. So um, you may not have the confidence to pray for people to um, have sight who are blind. Um, uh, But we can meet people's needs. And that's something that we do pretty well here, actually, at B&A. It's a Going back to the the text, it's a continuous theme in the text all the way through John's Gospel. We we heard last week about how the shame of the woman was met at the well with with dignity and forgiveness. And um, chapters later, the hungry people in the wilderness were met with bread. But in each of those encounters, there's always an invitation to believe. There's always an invitation to believe. Jesus met the needs of the blind man here spectacularly. And then after that, Jesus found him, verse 35. It wasn't enough to meet his needs. Do you believe into the Son of Man? His heart was softened. In the 60s, there was a a Roman Catholic missionary who went to East Africa called Vincent Donovan. And um, he was part of a a kind of social justice outworking of of mission in that part of the world and they were trying to engage with the Maasai tribe and after a while um, he he 
was thinking, well, how is it that we're educating you and we're um, helping you to get better, um, and yet you don't seem to want to know anything about this faith that is why we're here? And he arranged some meetings with um, some of the, the, the tribe, um, tribal chieftains in the area. Um, and after a while, they kind of got to the point where they asked him the, the question, well, why did it take you so long to tell us why you were here? So once he'd explained the gospel to them, they said to him, why did it take you so long? Why were you doing all of this stuff and not telling us why you were here in the first place? And he wrote a book called Christianity Rediscovered in which he explains that story. And, and, and it's a challenge to us because actually as a church, we're really good at meeting people's needs. We're less good at coming alongside afterwards and saying, do you believe? Have you heard? Is this something that you want to know? And that's okay, because over the last six years as a church, we've grown significantly in our understanding of what it means to meet people's needs. But it's just knowing that the next step is to be able to ask that question. Do you believe? Do you believe into the Son of Man?